Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I am choosing to speak on the topic of Jiyuwaza. More pointedly, what is it? And to make the case that we should all train in a way that it becomes the main staple of our practice very much akin to how Zazen is the main staple in Zen training. Today it's, it's very common to again get out that kanji dictionary, look up the word jiu, and go, oh, freedom, free, free waza, free technique. Um, but as a listener that has been following the podcast from the beginning would know, I'm very critical of that. In particular, because language is contextual or language is nothing at all. And also because as language is an expression of thought and of thinking, it's important to point out that thought itself has a history. That there are ways of thinking and they are different from place to place and more importantly, from time to time. There is a history to thought. It's this latter point, in my opinion, that is plaguing most of the martial arts today, in particular arts like Aikido. That is, arts that had huge portions of their development take place during what historians of thought would call an epistemic shift. And an art like Aikido, because it, it was developing within and through an epistemic shift, arts like that are prone to being very confusing to modern practitioners, people on the downside or the other side or the completion side of an epistemic shift. To the point, O-sensei 
how he understood his practice, his life, his art, the world, was not just another way of thinking scientifically or non-scientifically as we would like to understand him, but an entirely different way of thinking because he was on the other side of this shift. He belongs to another history of thought. And most of our errors in understanding what he was doing, why, how, toward what end, come simply from the fact that we look back at him not at not through his own history of thought but through our own and something as central as giwaza as what it was or what it is how we understand that is entirely affected by this epistemic shift and affected more times than not negatively. So I'd like to go into that a little bit and to see how we can do our own archaeology to reach in some way, however we can, across this chasm of thinking, of how to think, to an age and a time in which the core aspects of Aikido were developed and used. I'm not even sure if it's possible. I've, I've never seen... any work done on how we as human beings can fully shift and adopt one episteme for another episteme. But that solution or supposed solution, as tempting as it might be, to tell ourselves, well, I'm going to learn how to think and see the world like O-sensei, and then I will understand what he was doing and why. That, that simple solution may stem from a false problem. The problem being that no epistemic shift is ever 100% complete. Obviously, the history of Aikido is, is part, of, part of proving that. As the founder was working with an older way of thinking or a, a now disappearing way of thinking and people like his son, grandson, and the Shihan that spread the art to the world were 
more in alignment with a modern way of thinking or a scientific way of thinking. It's proof that there are people that will be side by side and not only think different things, but are thinking differently. It's but a short jump to the fact that individual humans within themselves never really have one way of thinking. On the positive side, this makes it possible, I imagine, for us to reach back across the epistemic shift. But on the negative side, it's likely that we can never really or fully abandon our own epistemy and that that in turn will lead at times to less accurate understandings and even outright misunderstandings. Many people who do a casual history which is often the case in something like a, a history of Aikido, which is not a bad thing because to do a sincere and accurate history is to dedicate all of one's time to that. And that means no time on the mat. And that no that lack of time on the mat in some way leads to a kind of ignorance similar to how a full dedication of one's life to historiography leads to a kind of insight. But as the case is that we have these casual historiographies when it comes to the history of Aikido, we often do not see any testament to the fact that language and thinking changes over time. Nor do we see it pointed out to us that what is often portrayed as an evolution of thought and insight and action is nothing more than a kind of political slogan that the new epistemy tells itself about the old one. that those on the now dominant side of an epistemic shift can never look back at the other 
and simply portray it as another way of living. It must always be portrayed as a lesser way, as a wrong way, as something that we have moved past and moved past for good reason. But historians of thought know this is not true. That the world seems to be some kind of landscape and equally some kind of mindscape that allows for many, many ways to establish what requires a practical arena. But this casualness with Aikido history and with the history of martial arts in general, as I said, assumes no history of thought, no history of language. And we... We are, however, left with their tools. We're left with their technologies. But we have no idea how they were meant to function and therefore how they actually function. Because function they did. And only that political slogan narrative tells us that they didn't. But they did. And that is why they existed for so many centuries. They worked. We just don't know how they worked. And we begin to look at them with our own epistemic eyes. And we are confounded and confused. And what we cannot force to fit into our own paradigm we throw out, we point at it and designate it as useless. And the more you do not understand, the more you cannot make to fit, the more you throw out as useless. And that is very much what we're seeing, not only in Aikido, but in the martial arts in general today we we hold ourselves as moderns we hold ourselves as oh we know what works now and we know we don't need x or y we have invented the wheel again This kind of activity any historian of thought would tell you happen, has happened countless times throughout human history and will go on happening. That there is no evolution. That the forcing of a Darwinian worldview is nothing more than our own epistemic paradigm.
So today, Jiuwaza, and I imagine we will have to speak on Kihonwaza as well. Jiuwaza is looked up in the dictionary, it's free technique, and it is more commonly practiced wherein Nage decides what they're going to do, which waza they're going to do. Perhaps the initial energy print or grab or attack is designated. Let's say it's Ryotedori. And then Nage will proceed going up and down the Kihon lexicon. Kokyu Nage, Idimi Nage, Kokyu Ho, Juji Nage. And Jiyu, freedom, is identified with Nage's capacity to choose which order they do these techniques in. They're free to choose. I cannot think of a more obvious example of a modern person being left an artifact from a pre-modern way of thinking, having no idea what that artifact was or how it is used, having only a clue, in this case the word jiu, as if it was stamped on the side of it like a Nike logo or a made-in-Germany stamp, and then trying to make it all make sense in modern terms. But if you look, if you, if you start out and you don't ask yourselves what this means to you, but instead go back to the ground in which the practice was first developed, as an archaeologist would, to see how the practice of Jiyuwaza was developed before you look at how it was utilized historically. When you see somebody who is just, when you see a Nage who's claiming to be doing Jiyuwaza, but that Jiyuwaza is just a, a switching in the sequence of Kihonwaza techniques, you would look at it and you go, nothing could be further from what this practice was meant to be and meant to do. So let's go back in time. Again, I am, with good reason, no longer an academic So I'm only interested in this exercise, truthfully, to the point that it frees me from my own paradigmatic blindness. I'm not interested in writing the history that I mention here, but maybe someone out there can use it as a pointer 
Definitely anyone can use it as a pointer for their own practice, but someone might be able to use it as a pointer in their own historiography of the martial arts or of the martial art of Aikido. I'm going to use modern terms wherever we can. As I said, I don't think we can free ourselves from our own age's way of thinking entirely. But I also think using modern terms whenever possible helps those, us, helps us moderns understand a little better what we're struggling with. Let's start with Kihon. Kihon waza. Not what it is in the sense of it's ikkyo or nikkyo or sankyo. Let's go deeper. Let's go back further. To the beginnings when there was a problem for man. Where he or she looked at two states of being. The first state we'll call A and we'll designate it as as is. The second state we'll call B and we'll designate it as what you want to be. State A is where we're at. When we came in the door, when we were born, when we found the teacher, when we found the teaching, it seems to be a coincidence of happenstance. There's no conscious direction to it. It has no aiming toward any purpose or meaning. It treats equally what is better from what is worse, from what is greater to what is lesser. State B is the opposite. It is an agency that is opened up and made available by an application of wisdom and truth. It sides with what is greater, what is more applicable, what is finer, what is all that one should be. An ancient man, at some point in history, wanted people in state A to be able to move to state B. 
wanted no longer to leave the eruption of a state be on the social landscape to the coincidence of happenstance associated with state A. But the problem is, how do you go from A to B? We might think this is a simple problem, but anybody who is trying, let's say, to lose weight, the fitness and the diet industry, and soon to be the medical and pharmaceutical industry, are able to make billions of dollars because we humans do not so easily go from a state A of where I'm a hundred plus pounds more than I want to be to a state B where I am a hundred pounds less than I am now. There's a kind of inertia and a homeostatic energy that prevents it. There are forces that by today's standards we would say that are both conscious and unconscious and that are equally personal and social that prevent us from that kind of self-transformation. And any kind of transformation that is going from state A to state B is also plagued always by these contrary forces. Yet we know it's possible. We know it's possible. We know that human beings are not condemned to a state A or the same state A, we know in the observation of variation and in the observation of mutation and in the observation of transformation, we know we can do it as a species. But how to ensure it and how to make it more regular and even more possible That's a huge problem, and it's one the ancients took on. As they tackled that problem, they developed very sophisticated forms of what we would call psychology. They also developed 
natural principles, things that we would call perhaps scientific. But without our tools, our computers, our microscopes, or CAT scans, their levels of observation were reduced from our point of view to things they experienced and things they saw. That brings a kind of practicality to their technologies of self, their means of moving a person from state A to state B. And that practicality is what validates the means. When this is your arena of thought, observation in daily life is going to be key, as that is not only what you're exposed to, but that is what is practical. So you're going to look at things where you see transformation happening in what appears to be or by what appears to be its own accord. You're going to look at human beings and see where they transform and how and why. And then you're going to try to mimic that situation as much as possible to see and to hope that you gain the same results. One place they looked was in the rearing of children. It's also one place we can look today. A child is reared not in any kind of conscious way, quite differently than how we think today. For, for example, on our side of the epistemic shift, there was a, an associated logocentrism, a priority given to thought and word and language. And so we raise our children today trying to use those tools. Rather than, for example, ritually
guiding our children through the golden rule, we will explain to them in the hopes they understand. the value of compassion. Excuse me. Scientifically, the jury's out. Explaining does not work. But in terms of popular application, that's being a good parent. But this is an experiment. This is a place, those of you with with children, young children, you can employ these ancient technologies and see that they do produce results. So let's give you the experiment. And just for those who, without children, know what we're talking about. Eventually, you have a young child, and this young child might do something that is egocentric, selfish, asocial to another child. The other child will feel bad, sad, demoralized for having experienced this act of egocentricity. You'll witness it. And as a modern parent who is supposed to be a good parent, you will take your child and you will explain to them why this other child is feeling sad or poorly or negatively. And the assumption here is that your child, even as young as two, three, four, is going to be capable of understanding logically, reasonably, this key component of the social contract. And therefore, as a good logician, as a good modern, even though they're only four years old, they will somehow in themselves tell themselves, I need to remain logical and reasonable and I will no longer act egocentrically for the sake of this social contract by which we all are required to live in order for there to be peace in our communities and in our households. An ancient way of doing this would be to handle it ritually. And I'll go into this because it's this sense of ritual is key for martial arts. Even the most modern of martial arts is unaware of how central the role ritual plays in their training and in their development. So, in ancient times, the idea of explaining and of holding the child accountable to a rational discourse would have been absurd because there was no logocentricity, there was no prioritization 
of thought and rationality above any of the other key human aspects. So you didn't do it, you weren't motivated to do it, and you weren't considered less human for having not done it. Instead, you'd run through a ritual. You'd see your two-year-old child take a toy from another two-year-old child. You'd see that two-year-old child that had the toy taken away get sad. You go over there. And you ritually tell your child, give the toy back, say you're sorry, and your child will give the toy back, say they're sorry, and they will continue playing. And there's no explanation. And there's no anticipation of a rational understanding on the point on the part of the two-year-old. Instead, there's just this ritual. And this ritual is performed over and over and over as it erupts in the child's life. And as such, through some sort of invisible and not fully grasp aspect of our humanity, it becomes the child's modality for behavior, for interacting with others. There's a naturalness to it that takes place somehow in the alchemy of self-development. And this child grows up to be a person who innately lives the golden rule. Scholars today call this as if, as if training, as if practice. The child performs the ritual as if the golden rule is already innately a part of their self. And it is entirely different from what has happened after that epistemic shift where logocentricity developed and a deprioritization of other aspects of our being occurred. Well, the ancients saw this all over the place. That somehow you could, as a human being, move from state A to state B through an application of ritual and via some unknown alchemy 
that was particular to our species, we could develop an, uh, our own innateness and have it be state B. To be sure, throughout time, there were attempts to explain that alchemy. But there were oftentimes great criticisms against that, those explanations. Some more well-known ones would be um, the huge and highly sophisticated psychology, those lists of the mind and the mind structures and reality that you see in Buddhism. As in Tantric Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. But they were there in other earlier schools as well. In comparison to Zen, Or even Taoism's ultimate critique of what Confucianism eventually became. This criticism and this charge of a paralysis of analysis. It's always been there as ancient man struggled with this early insight in their application of as-if ritual. Because what the final goal was and where we have the most difficulty as moderns the final goal was that innateness, that naturalness. That state B was not a layer put upon the self, but was the self. That somehow... You were and you could be trained, but you would lose all signs of the training. This is, this is key. This is key. Kihon waza and ji waza follow this model, which you can see back in time, starting ages ago, including the struggles against a paralysis of analysis, which you would have to include in this history. But obviously, by the time you got to Confucian pedagogy, you had this firmly in place, 
and very much a part of the timeline of the martial arts of East Asia, which would include the art of Aikido. There was a given state, there was a desired state, there was a quest and an effort to move from the former to the latter, and it was done in a way that was akin to all observed transformation. It was done ritually, it was done as if. And it was considered accomplished when the final state was free of all training efforts. So let's go into this as if. Kihon is as if rituals. O-sensei often spoke about Aikido being purification and we like to think of that as as moderns we think of that metaphorically and he did not mean it metaphorically because the very ritual purifications he did participate in were themselves as if rituals and the techniques as we call them today for the ancients were not techniques but were themselves as if rituals in that sense they were just a concentric truth application of this very means this technology i previously described it was used in the temple it was used on the mountaintop it was used in the river at this sacred site in front of this sacred tree and it was used in the dojo So the Deshi who came into the training hall with their state A way of being was now provided this other way of being which was not their own, which was foreign to them. But with but was tasking them by putting it on, wearing it, pretending you are it, going through the motions as if you already wore a state B being. And by repeating that over and over and hours upon hours and years upon years, you could leave the transformation up to that innate alchemy in human beings 
that allows us to become other even unto ourselves. This is the shoe of Shuhari. Today, if you look up Shuhari, it makes it sound like it's an official part and an unquestioned, unproblematic part of the learning process. That a student is giving material to study, to understand, to embody. And this is the state of Shu. And that, that is then followed by Ha, which is a state where they move beyond said material. That's the second stage of learning. It is told to us. And then this second stage is followed by a third stage, which sometimes is defined in a way that you're like, what is that? How is that different from ha? Because it's often defined as being non form. But you get this understanding that it's linear. You go from here to there to there. And it can be, I imagine, but only conceptually. And I would also provide this caveat that Shuhadi is probably one of those paralysis of analysis eruptions into history. And obviously because of that, because the ancients would have saw it as a paralysis of analysis, it was an overutilization and a prioritization of the intellect, which is why it speaks to us today as moderns. Because that's part of our epistemic paradigm. But by the ancient episteme, there is a concentric truth to things. So there is not only this macro-cosmic linearity to learning, but this shuhadi cycle happens at a microcosmic level within the individual and within the infinitely small moment. of a single strike and a response. But we can use Shuhadi today to see how, in fact, the ancients did want to follow this model of moving from a state A to a state B, and how state B could not be fully manifested if it maintained 
evidence of its training, if it was not a state in which there was no separation between the doer and the doing. We're talking about spontaneity here, but not spontaneity without shape or form. It is a particular type of spontaneity, one that is governed by those preconceived notions of wisdom, of insight, of natural principle, etc. Because any action can be spontaneous, but not it is not true that any manifestation of spontaneity is correct or wise or appropriate. So I define the words shuhadi or the characters that this way um, using the discourse out of which they originated, which is in Buddhist philosophy. So shu is form. Ha is a deconstruction of form. And di is a reconciliation of form and non-form. At one level, shu is equivalent to kihon waza. And at one level, jiwaza is equivalent to ri. But this one-to-one assigning is misleading because this Buddhist model of understanding was not only applied linearly in terms of teaching and of learning, but as I said, is the process that happens microcosmically within the individual, within the infinitely accelerated manifestation of self and other and world. In other words, it is denoting, it is a map, so to speak, for the very process and the very moment at which a person who has achieved state B is inseparable from state B. It is not just a matter of spontaneity. In other words, it is a matter of being. So the ancients developed this use of as if rituals where a person is given, in this case, in Aikido, for example, you're given a technique, Ikkyo, and it's as if you are going to move as if you are already of state B. The instructor is going to be there and is not going to let you move as if you are state A. No, that's not where your foot goes. No, this is the wrong timing. You're clashing here. No, clear the line of attack. No, this is where you enter. First, you need a yin space in order to enter. Enter, idimi is a yang movement. It must be harmonized to a yin space. No, you're muscling your shoulders. You have isolated your deltoids. 
put your shoulders in your hips in a constant relationship. Pressurize your body. Know you're using momentum and inertia. And it goes on and on and on like that. Now, this training took place, too, within a social network or a social a social world that was meant to foster its more efficient functioning. It didn't just happen as I described it. There was a whole set of social rules that went with it, and these rules were not rules like our rules today, which are some sort of measurement for moral and amoral behavior that are worthy of punishment or reward. These rules were rules of efficiency because the ultimate goal and the ultimate end that legitimated this technology was practicality. So these rules were aimed at efficiency of transmission. So go back to our child relationship and I'm teaching the child the golden rule and the child maybe is intelligent beyond their years and I tell the child, give the toy back and the child says, why? Now you're prompted to use the modern ritual, which is no ritual at all, so let me take that word back. You're prompted to use the modern response of intellectualization and answer this why. Assuming that that why is actually proof that rationalization can take place and will lead to the overall sought practical, practical application of the golden rule. Those are two huge assumptions because in all likelihood that why is really just a power struggle. The reason being is the child is not capable of understanding at that age the needs for social constructs, even the needs that we have psychologically for others, and thus the importance of the ability to get along with others. You can see that most people don't truly understand that until they're in their 50s or 60s when they find themselves all alone or in some sort of life that they will feel is meaningless. But in the as-if ritual, you have set things up beforehand where the child 
is almost motivated not to have a why. Not in some sort of repressive, tyrannical way, but the child knows and comes to know that the answer they truly seek, if that is a valid, legitimate why, will be given to them in time, but cannot be given now. So you go back to Ikkyo and you tell you tell the Deshi, we're going to hold the elbow like this. When the Deshi was holding it differently. And an adult, especially a modern adult, will probably go, oh, I think this feels better. Why can't I hold it like this? And that why is not a true why. It's not a why that says, if you can explain it to me scientifically, I will then do it. That's not what happens. That is the homeostatic energy that's holding them to state A. And you can bring this out by running another experiment. Pick up the pace. Well, first explain to them why the hand is positioned this way. Give them the biomechanics and the kinesiology. Show them the physics. And now run it faster and harder. And you will see that they grab the state A way. This points to several things. The uselessness of the intellect, or at least its limitations, in state B, when state B is aimed at a practicality and an innateness. So systems were set up so that wise did not arise. At least not then. And these systems were joined with other practices to help them not arise. Other practices aimed at developing within a deshi the capacity to get out of their own way, which is a freeing of that homeostatic energy which bonds them to state A. And this problem perhaps compounded by decades of state A being as in the training of adults. Is where you have the development of these technologies of self. where you have the birth of the ways, the birth of 
religion. Efforts by humans to cultivate humans to better states of being and to have those states of being be so innate that all traces of training have disappeared. This is the of Shuhadi. This is Takamusaiki. This is Aikido as being. This is the spontaneity of art. This is the communion of the doer and the doing. And this was the goal of the martial arts. This was the problem, the human problem, and this was the solution they provided. And it was a solution that worked. So it is a solution that can work. And when it's not working, it's because we're not understanding it. And there's some kind of pride, and in all pride there's a kind of foolishness. In us looking at this problem of spontaneity of art and saying we have solved it better. And did so in but 20 years. And that foolishness to me comes out when we look at how or why Jiyuwaza is practiced today. Because what Jiyuwaza is for a state A person is a mirror. and an amplification of their state A-ness. And what Jiwaza is for someone in state B It is the core practice 
and expression of the communion between the doer and the doing. So a person or a practitioner who does Dyotadori and understands their Jiwaza as simply altering the sequence of Kihonwaza. This is not Jiwaza. This is state A shoe level training. It is simply Kihonwaza done over and over without a break. It is still just as if ritual. It is being, it is a being and a way of moving that is pressed upon the practitioner at the earliest levels. This doesn't make it wrong, per se, in terms of one's overall practice, as, as if training is important. But the error occurs where this surplants and replaces and makes disappear the practice of Jiwaza. It is when this makes legitimate Jiwaza practice gone from one's training that the error occurs. If we go to the ideal, Jiwaza is a reconciliation of form and non-form, this communion of doing and doer. In classic Buddhist philosophy, the is not an outwardly rejection of the as-if rituals. Rather, it is an ontological absence of the doer. And that is exactly what you do not have in a person who is just altering the sequence of Kihon Waza. In their decision-making, you have a doer. I'm going to do this technique. I'm going to do that technique. And therein you have the doing. I, the doer, am going to do this technique the doing. There is a separation of the two. There is no takamusaiki. 
Because the end goal of this technology is that innate naturalness where one is just a being. So let's make that our first rule for Jiyuwaza. No picking techniques. No picking techniques beforehand. If in my Jiwaza practice, my uke is violating rule one in that they pick which ukemi they're going to do once they identify my technique, I am no closer to the communion between the doer and the doing. This is the problem with any uke who themselves is still operating at shoe level. This is the problem with the uke who turns around for the front breakfall. And the Nage who anticipates it. So rule one has to apply to Uke as well. Uke should be assigned a single task, whatever it might be. It might be a multiplicity of tasks. It's not important. They then stick to that task and then have only the secondary concern of don't die. Don't land on your head. Don't break your neck. etc. So let's take the let's give uke a single assigned task for simplification here we will give them ryotadori and this ryotadori will be a pushing through An asocial violence expression of territoriality wherein their spine will displace Naga's spine from where it was at the moment of contact. And that's it. They will not throw themselves off balance 
They will not overcommit, so they are off balance. They will not stick their limbs to nage. They will not run around nage for no reason. Now, in the infinite variation of human-produced manifestations, you're going to get infinite variation. So, well, push will come in at this angle. The next one will come in 30 degrees to the left. The next one will have a slight downward pressure the next one a slight upward pressure. This one will have an asymmetrical pressure. This uke will be taller. This uke will be shorter. This uke will be heavier. This uke will be lighter. And it goes on and on and on. And eventually what will happen to the Nage is a form will manifest in their mind. Shu. And if the Nage continues with this, then they will have broken rule one. But there will also be a practical and visible affect from breaking rule one. Most times what you will see is that the technique that is chosen was chosen out of some sort of state A type of being, either fear or a will to power. And so the chosen form does not fit the situation, which means it is inconsistent with state B types of being. So you'll see a yang against yang energy, a contention, a clash. If they are weaker, they'll be overpowered. If they are stronger, they will overpower all state A ways of being and doing. So what happens psychologically in the state B person is, yes, the form, the form will arise in the mind. Shu will arise in the mind. But within the mind of the practitioner, it will be deconstructed. Ha! This is not a matter of, I'm going to use the 
elbow grab of Ikkyo and the hand sword of Kotagaesh. No, it could be, but that's not the source and not the application of Shuhari as it was originally hypothesized. Ha is a deconstruction of form, and a deconstruction of form requires a deconstruction of self. As the form can only exist and is and causes to exist through and with the self. This human mind of ours starts this kind of triangle of thought, of object, and of self. And so when the uke comes in, you feel the pressure. Those things of state A are things of human beings. And we are humans, whether we are state A or state B. They will be present. Big strong uke will push on my left hand and there will be as in the moment of a spark from a stone, there will be this triangular manifestation of self and of object and of form. And it will start equally as quickly all of the chain of existence My arm, your arm, stronger, weaker, life, death, right, left. And it will trigger state A modes of being involving preference and rejection. And state A types of action, contention. And if I cannot in that moment deconstruct this relationship between self and form, I will remain in state A. But if I can dissolve the self, detach the self, such that the form and this chain of existence and the associated states of being and action also dissolve. If I can do that, I am in D. I have reconciled form and non-form.
and the technique might be ikkyo that is applied and made visible to an outside observer. But to me, the practitioner, there was just a being. There was just Takamusaiki. Sure, I can, after the fact, go, oh yeah, that was Ikkyo. Or even in the middle, you're doing Ikkyo. But you can equally go and stay without that metacognition and have no idea what you're doing. It's just right. It's innately right. It's just natural. And it takes no more conscious effort than the taking of a breath. This is what the ancients sought. And should you task yourself with a way of being that you deem to be wise, better, more positive, And then you doubly task yourself with having that being, that way of being, be innate unto yourself. Then you are going to use a Shuhadi model. You're going to use the traditional dojo and sensei supportive technologies. You're going to use as-if rituals because there's no better way of doing it. Are better ways... are after different things. And it's just that post-epistemic shift slogan-making that has us use the word better. In my opinion... The modern's aims are lesser aims. They are reductions, not only in terms of achievement, but in terms of who we are 
as organisms. There is so much to this process of self-dissolvement or detachment, this breaking up of form attachment, and this effort to cease living haphazardly, coincidentally, with no consciousness toward a better way, a wiser way. We are fools. And we will remain so until we choose to no longer be so. Be so. Jiwaza sets up that moment as it sets up that problem of being. And that problem is set up whether we are going fast or slow or hard or whether you assign 10 tasks to uke or just one because the human mind will always set up this dichotomy of form and non-form and this reification of self And Jiwaza brings all that to the surface. But if you don't know what you're looking for, then you don't know what you're seeing. And if you're an outsider who has modern concerns, you're going to look at Jiwaza and not see the problem of mind and the infringement on spontaneity. That comes to us via the mind constructs of form and non-form. And you're going to think it's stupid. If you're an outsider, you're going to think it's stupid. And if you're an insider, 
You're going to do it stupidly. But if, like the ancients, you're concerned with this practicality, then the issue of spontaneity is going to be important. And if the issue of spontaneity is important, then the human mind's tendency to reify the self in the constructs of form and non-form is going to be of central importance to you as well. In many ways, the current trend in martial arts was not caused by the invention of new techniques. This is just a way of dressing it for marketing reasons. It was caused by a lack of skill in spontaneity. As arts no longer trained for it. As arts have come to know, longer know how to train for it. And relatedly, this trend was not only caused by this lack of capacity and spontaneity, but what always accompanies that uh, it was brought about in part by an over-specialization, which itself is generated by a preoccupation with forms, which itself is all you have when you no longer have spontaneity. When you no longer have ha, you will not have li, and all you have is shu. And shu is then expected to do things it was never meant to do. Things it can never do. And slowly you have to change it. So you have to move from as if rituals to self-defense techniques. That's what we do in the modern era. And as spontaneity is lost to us, somewhere in there the assumption is made that self-defense techniques innately carry within them the capacity for spontaneous application. 
And now we are completely at odds with the ancients. And we are completely wrong. As you can train in a movement over and over and over, and it will not carry any spontaneity within it, and in fact will actually become the obstacle to spontaneity. Our ways are not better. They are lesser ways. Our modern ways. And we are lesser people for following them. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.